Good morning. <clears throat> All right, if, if you don't know who I am, nice to meet you. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so we're going to be diving in to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> First off, a little about myself. I love basketball. Not so much watching it, although that, that's fun, but more so playing it. And the thing about basketball and a lot of team sports, but uh, it's not like those solo sports like golf or wrestling or track or tennis, nothing like that. You have to fully rely on your team to get anything done, really. And there's nothing quite, to me, there's nothing quite like being on the court amongst <clears throat> your, your friends, your, your comrades, the people that you've spent like all season with and probably multiple seasons with and uh, with those guys working together as a team to break down another team's defense. Like if you, if you act on your own, nothing really happens, but if you act as a team and work together with the, the plans that you have, you can get them in shambles, you can get them kind of scrambling around the court and in chaos and it's a great feeling, really. But then, inevitably, what happens is uh, everything's perfect, going great, and then you get pulled off the court because, you know, you're so awesome. And everything just starts going to shambles. And uh, suddenly, things happen. Like, you know, your, your tallest guy, your most uncoordinated guy, takes the ball from the other end of the court and starts bringing the ball up uh, and fumbles it or whatever. Or, you know, your smallest guy starts getting unfair elbows from the big guy on their team. And you're watching it, and you're sitting there on the bench. And you're not able to be out on the court. You're sitting there on the bench, on the sidelines, just yelling at your team, trying to get something done. Of course, they're not hearing you. They're all involved in everything that's going on. And since you're on the outside, we all know this. Because we're on the outside more than we're on the inside. Especially if you watch games. You know exactly what should happen in order for things to go back to normal. You know exactly what to say to this guy. You know exactly what play to run. And you're thinking, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Like, this guy should be doing that. And you should be telling this guy to do that. And you're just sitting there helpless, watching, thinking, man, if only I could set foot back in the court. If only I could get off of this bench and I could, I could fix it all. It would all come back to the way things are supposed to be. Well, cue 1 Corinthians 4. Paul, he really starts to feel his distance and his time away from the Corinthians as his beloved church plant starts to get derailed. And yeah, I know I made a basketball term, uh, basketball point on Super Bowl Sunday. So you can forgive me for that. I actually don't know anything about football, so not even going to try to pretend. And I realize now that maybe that's a prerequisite to being a pastor, is knowing things and caring about football, but oh well. All right, but this is our, this is our sixth, kind of seventh week in 1 Corinthians in, in which Paul really dives into some of the problems that the church is having. And so we get... A, we get a view of, of everything that's, that's happening in the Corinthian church. And then Paul, in this passage, really trying to 
uh, reach them with this message. So the congregation, they had been picking sides with the apostles who never wanted them to pick sides. And Paul had already confronted them about believing all of the things out in the world, the knowledge and all that in the world, and the worldly wisdom, all that, without even considering God's wisdom and true, true wisdom, truth. And then he confronts them about their spiritual maturity. And he says, you guys are, are like babies, you know, drinking milk. You still need the milk, but guess what? Here comes the refining fire, so you need to be ready for that refining fire. And so this week is really the end of Paul's confrontation to the Corinthians regarding directly their divisions. He's going to attempt to show the Corinthians that they're all on the same page. The apostles all on the same page. The, the Corinthian church all on the same page. Like they should be serving the same God with the same goals and the same leader. But the church, they, they have been listening to the culture around them. They've been accepting more of, of what's around them than really of what God has for them and God's leadership on their own lives. And then they've been disregarding their spiritual mentors. And so Paul's coming in. He's going to try and lay claim to the positional authority that he used to have when he was there with them. And he hopes that his confrontation doesn't fall on deaf ears. So we're going to be... In the first seven verses, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7, servants and stewards. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring, the light, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul here, he's, he's really shifting into a, a new gear. He's, tr he's trying to reestablish the authority he used to have over the, the Corinthian church. He says that he and the other apostles are servants. And he uses a word that he uses. It's a little bit different than what he used in a, the prior chapter. The prior chapter, he used the servant for, or used the word for servant, which means courier or messenger. And here, he says something different. He uses a term called under rower. And under rower is a, it's a common use for the term servant, but it, it references a trireme. We have a picture of that. Here's a trireme. So an under rower is the, those people on the bottom. They're all below deck, and they're rowing to you know along with the the rest of their team, and they're just listening to the other people in charge. They're all under deck, and only a third of them can see the water, and the rest of them can't see anything. So they all have to be on, on the same page. He's like, we're one of those servants. 
And then he uses a, a different language, uh, which is a Greek term for a, a servant who's in charge of an estate, a large estate. So in that, in that day, there was this head servant and a rich landowner who would have lots of land and, and lots of slaves in order to not get bogged down by all the menial tasks during the day and all the little tasks during the day, he would appoint one of his, one of his people to be overseer, manager of, of all of the, the going-ons uh, around the estate. And so this person also, more often than not, would be a slave. And so to, the, to the, all the slaves, this slave was a master. But that, that guy, to the real master, was a slave. So if that's a little confusing, just think of Joseph in uh, Genesis 39, where he was appointed as the overseer of the whole household. So he's doing a, a few things here, Paul is. He's reminding his readers that his former rebuke where they're, of them picking their sides and all that, who their favorite leader was, that was ridiculous. They're all on the same team. Second, he's reminding them that he is himself is submitting to the authority of God. And third, he's setting the stage to uh, admonish them as a spiritual authority over them. So it's, it's kind of strange because he has to toe the line here between, oh yeah, we're all servants and kind of indicating that there's no hierarchy, but at the same time claiming authority over them so that he can sp speak truth into their lives. So this, this visual of, of head servant really works works well for him here. He reminds them that the, the master may give them autonomy, but he's going to check up on them. The master's going to check up on them, whether they've been faithful and trustworthy or not. Whether or not they're uh, apostles, just all believers. In 1 Peter 4.10, it says this way, as each has received his gift, use it to serve one another as God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So everyone has these gifts, and, and God expects you to be good stewards of those gifts. So to be judged or praised by humans doesn't really matter to Paul. He dismisses them. And we, we've already established this in, in 1 Corinthians, but the Corinthians seem to be putting a lot of stake in the culture around them, and, and specifically here, the human judgment, the other people judging how they are living and what they're doing. They valued other people's thoughts really more than they valued God's judgment of them, which is why they, they ended up putting themselves in these divisive camps, like, oh, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. And Paul, he's, he's, not, being, he's not interested in, in being sifted amount. He's not interested in his own little posse. He prefers to wait for the true judge. This doesn't mean that Paul isn't encouraged by some of the praises, the real praises of him. It doesn't mean that Paul isn't hurt by some of the criticisms that they have of him. It simply means that he's going to disregard them and they don't affect his conviction or his action. And moreover, he has to keep his own views of himself in line and disregard some of his own views of himself as irrelevant. Because we can all be worst, the worst critics, really, of ourselves. 
And being the worst critic of yourself can, can make you deflated or, or defeated. And at the same time, well, we can really big, be like way too much of a, a fan of ourselves. Like we can overinflate our egos and that does as much damage to us as anything else in all areas of our life, in our relationships, in, in, uh, in our jobs, in, in everything. So Paul models simply that God is to be the judge and he is to be the master. So we have these three judges we all must face, the judge, judges of the others, of ourselves, and God. But God alone reserves the right to judge us. And he knows things that no one else can. He knows our, our circumstances. He knows the ins and outs of our life, our struggles, our secrets, our hurdles. He knows our motives. Because, man, they, they look at the outside, but God looks at our heart, as it says in 1 Samuel 16. So we can dodge the judgment of others, but we can't dodge the judgment of God. Judgment belongs to God alone, not to us, not to others. So that's how Paul ends his topic, and he, and he kind of finishes it off by, well, the, the real judge of, of everything is going to be coming back. He's going to be returning, and his return is imminent. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says it this way, Colossians 3, says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We have a tendency to care more about what other people think than what God thinks. But we should be worried and concerned alone about the, the one true judge of all, and he should be the one that matters. Paul then goes into this statement that is generally pretty unclear. He says in verse 6, it's, he says, I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So that phrase, that, uh, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What it actually says is something like this. The next one. That you may learn in us the not beyond what is written. That you may learn in us the not beyond what is written. So the additions in your Bible just are there. They're not there in the original text. They're there just to make it make sense. But no one actually knows what he's saying here. It's possible that he was using a cultural phrase that all of them, when hearing this, uh, that they would have recognized and they would have known exactly what he was saying. After all, Corinth, it was a big city. It was a happening city. So it was likely that there sure been, may have been something there that they would have known what it meant, but we haven't picked up on it here. We don't know what they meant. But uh, I'm not fully convinced of that. It might have been partly that. I think more so it's, it's probably the other argument that it was some kind of insider language, like something that had been thrown around the church that Paul was talking to them like they would know exactly what he meant because this was a phrase that they used when he was in Corinth. That makes more sense to me because it's like, well, he's trying to connect with his, his people there. Regardless, it's something that the hearers would have heard and would have known that it, what he was talking about. So 
the argument of this section kind of sums up a lot of what had happened in previous chapters. And, uh, and I think Paul's trying to tie it all together and saying, well, there's, there's a lot of people here in the church of Corinth that they just care what other people think around them. So there's these, these, these people that are caught up in the culture, caught up in the wisdom like we talked about last chapter, caught up in the wisdom of all the people around them and, they're, and what they think because they follow this guy or this guy or this guy or this guy. They, they're caught up in what other people think about that and they may be caught up in the sin and some of the garbage in the culture around them. And then there's these other guys that I, I think that's what he's referencing, referencing here is there's these other guys who are like, well, I'm better than everyone else. We've already established that those people are in the church. And so I think Paul's wrapping it all up. There's these guys who are doing, doing terrible things that they shouldn't be doing and they think it's okay. And then there's these other guys who think they're better than everyone because they're following all the law and, and piling on law that they've made up to make them look like they're better than everyone else, that they're the true Christians or true believers or whatever. That there's all law and no grace. So Paul, he, he continues, verse 8 through 13. It says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has ex- exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul dives in to a scowling rebuke, really just drenched in irony. I don't know if you picked up on that, but the way he's talking to the church, it's really, it's kind of similar to the way Jesus talked to the religious leaders of the day. It's pretty harsh. He says, you guys, well, you guys, you're set. You're fine. You have everything you want. You're spiritually satiated. Forget about all this stuff Jesus said. Like in Matthew 5, when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Forget about all that. The Corinthians felt no lack. They're fine. They felt secure. And Paul underhandedly and, and cleverly kind of calls them virtuous and, and plays off all that, saying the, the line of the Stoics where he says, I alone am rich, I reign as king. As if to say, I'm in control of everything that I can control, which is the ultimate end of the, the Stoics and their ideal uh, philosophy of like, self-sufficiency. They were showing that it was clear that they didn't need anyone, especially Paul. And I think, like, before we write these guys off, like some ungrateful, self-absorbed bunch, I think we need to look at our own hearts. When have we found ourselves self-sufficient? 
Like God's called me out of this mindset many times. I've had mentors rebuke me over my own entitlement or selfishness or self-sufficiency. And much of the time, uh, we don't, as, as a culture, rebuke this kind of self-sufficiency. We celebrate it or, or, or we seek it. A lot of times in the form of money. As Chris has said before, he says that uh, money, it insulates us from our problems. And I think that's some of what the Corinthians are feeling here. They, they're like, oh, well, we got everything figured out. We don't have any problems. But Paul, he tries to lay claim to his position in authority. Saying that, well, for better or worse, no matter where we are in life, God has put us in this authority. And then he, he draws a comparison between the two positions. He says, you guys don't have hardship? Well, we have hardship. Not just hardships, all this stuff in the past. We have hardships every single day, every single hour. You have all you want? Well, we lack food. You're safe. We're brutally treated all the time. And we actually have to work with our hands. It's like this in, in, in the, the Greek culture. They hated manual labor and they thought, well, you work with your hands? Like that's, only, that's work that's only meant for slaves. Like they're above all that. We're, they're above working with their hands. The apostles, the apostles, they went through all of this, but they endured it all. And more than endured, they write like they thrived through it all. He said, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we speak kindly. And he's telling them that what he's doing as he's following God and he's living a life really that Christ promised and Christ lived himself. It says in Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by man. Talking about Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So Paul's doing two things. He's establishing his credibility as someone who suffered for God's purpose in his kingdom. And he's contradicting the, the Greco-Roman culture yet again. They would culturally have looked at him in, in all these statements as being like unmanly or soft. He's like, all these people, they slandered me. And a Greek, like, no one talked bad about you or you get up in their face. Like these people, they, they beat us and, we, and like we just took it. He's like, no, like you need to be a man. And so he, he's like drawing lines again between their culture that they've accepted and and what God has called them to do. And he's trying to say, well, like, well, these are different. God's called me to all this. It goes, flies directly in the face of what you guys value. And then he finishes off with the words scum and refuse. They are trash and filth to be thrown out. And really, it's, it leaves them with this, this question, well, we're following God, we're this way, are you guys this way? And then if we look at it way on the outside, like is our culture here in America, is our culture really any different? Self-sufficiency, 
our, our culture of, of being proud and, and all that, like, are we thought in the same way as Christians? So Paul, he gives this, this harsh, harsh message, and he ends the chapter with a, a compelling, heartwarming appeal. He goes all, all tender on him. He says in, in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have, you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, as to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church, in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So <clears throat> his sternness gives way to his tenderness. This isn't a, a half-hearted message or some sort of like rhetorical trick to make them feel shameful about themselves. No, this is genuinely, it might be strategically written, but it's, it's his genuine heart in the matter. He's genuinely heartbroken that they've, in large part, disowned his authority. It's, it's his church plant. His heart aches for them who are straying, and he addresses them as, as dear children. And he's afraid that his warnings have fallen on deaf ears. But regardless, he has to do what he can to convince them that they're on the wrong path. In ministry, I've had countless conversations with students, all who I've, I've cared about on some level, all who have genuinely hoped that they could listen to what I have had to say without hitting rock bottom. That they would just heed my words, that they wouldn't have to go through it them, them, with them, go through it on their own with themselves, but they would be able to heed like my own experience or, or things that I've seen other people or good friends do in the same pits that other people have fallen into. That I'd sit down and have these conversations and be like, look, because I care about you, I'm not going to pretend like this isn't a big, big deal, but this is the path, this is where all of that goes. And I hope that you don't have to reach the end of that path before you realize that it's destructive, that it's going to hurt you. So the, there's been those people, and then there's been the, the students or even adult, adult leaders who have been more like, uh, the, the relationships have been more like a discipling or a mentoring relationship where I've, I'd hang out with them often, I'd, I'd be with them, I'd live life with them, and they'd consider them more and more, the more time we spent together, I'd consider them more and more like family. Ones who I've seen, well, like they leave me or I leave them or whatever, and, and I've seen them, okay, well, they're doing better 
beyond me. They're doing better without me. They're growing more. They're doing greater things. And then to see some of them stray or get caught up in all sorts of of things or get hurt by the church. And uh, to see them going through that and and think to myself, man, if, if only I could have been with them. To think, man, if they're multiple states away, but if only I could get back to the place where I'm there with them, or if only I had been closer to them when all this stuff happened, I could have helped them through it, or maybe I could have prevented some of it. And now I see them, and they're, they're struggling in this or whatever it is, and I'm clamoring back, trying to regain some of the relationship, some of the, the relational authority maybe I've had in their lives, and, and trying to bring us back to the place where we were sitting next to each other, sharing a cup of coffee. And it just isn't happening. Like, Paul is here feeling helpless, thinking, man, if only I could be with them. If only I could be, I'm doing my best, I'm going to send the guy that's closest to me that can go, but he echoes this desire to get back to that, that relationship. Like, this is his church plant. And he uses language as if it's a father doing the best to discipline his child. He's like, all right, well, you guys, you've had many guardians. You've had many people who've, who haven't led you astray. They've been telling you great things. They've been teaching you great things. Some of you have listened to them. Some of you haven't. And you've grown because of that. You've had all these people who are like guardians over you. But you haven't had very many fathers. And the difference here is, he, is he's... He's showing like an ownership and an affection over them. And he urges them just to get back to where they were. And he says, all right, well, you guys, your your spiritual babies, maybe the mark of, of Christ is too high. Just look at me, follow me. I'm tangible, I'm here, I'm attainable, I'm not nearly as high of a mark as Christ, but in doing so, in following me, you're going to follow Christ. He's not saying in a way like, oh, like, I'm the new Christ, like, you know, come follow me, and, you know, go in in that camp. He's saying, all right, well, if you can't get a hold of what Christ is calling you to, then just follow me and how I'm living and what I'm focusing on. He's saying it in a way that a shepherd guides his flock back to a place that's good for them. And they think, oh, well, like Paul, he doesn't really have it in, it, in him to visit us. He wouldn't, he wouldn't dare to set foot here, which is why he's too scared. He's a coward. He's not going to come here. Which is, that's why he sent Timothy, because he can't, he can't dare to face us himself. He's like, he's like, well, you guys have become arrogant in that. I sent Timothy because I knew there were problems going on, but he's like, I'm going to come myself. He's like, you better be ready. He, he, said, he says, uh, if it was entirely up to me, 
Like, I would be there right now. In fact, I am coming. And then he puts the little addendum on there. Well, Lord willing, I'm going to be coming. Because it's what God wants first, not, not what I want first. It isn't that the Corinthians don't know what they should do or they shouldn't do. It's that they know the good but do the evil. He knows that they know what's good, but in doing, it's the doing part that they lack. They need God's power to live as members of his kingdom. And right now, it seems like they're working on their own little kingdoms. But Paul wants to see them re-enter the, the will of their father to work on the true kingdom. So, the question he leaves them with is, well... Do I come in gentleness or sternness? Like, do I come with, uh, do I come with, you know, good vibes, or do I come with the rod or the whip? And it leaves us with that with that question: Like, are we humble enough to get the gentleness from God, the gentle instruction from God? Like, we all need correction. God's going to correct all of us. And uh, it might be through the other people in our lives. It might be through his, his word. But he's going to correct us. Are we going to allow him to correct us in gentleness through our own humility? Or are we going to be like a brick wall that someone has to break through? I want to be ready for God's admonition. Whether it comes from one of his followers or, or through his word. I want him to be able to get my attention without the rod, without the whip. Like, yeah, he's, he's had to use that on me. But I want to be in a place where I, I examine my heart and prepare my heart for God's instruction. Because the Holy Spirit uh, wants to move us, wants to correct us and guide us. And ultimately, a lot of times, it's, it's not going to be uh, what I want to hear, but it's going to be the best thing for me. So am I ready for that? We're going to move on to this. How then should we live? First, be concerned about what God thinks, not what others think. Next, rely on God for our needs. And lastly, to humble ourselves before God's leading and instruction. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word and Paul's heart in his message to the, the Corinthians. And I just pray that uh, as we take communion now, that we would examine our hearts and, uh, and really see, like, well, in the areas of our life, where are we proud where are we self-sufficient? And uh, who, do we, who do we really care about? Like whose input, whose judgment are we really seeking? Whose approval are we really seeking? I pray that you would humble us, humble us in our own hearts to accept your correction. The first time, the gentle, the gentle time that we would seek you and your instruction, that we would uh, seek the life 
that you would have for us in humility. Thank you, God, and I pray this all in your name, your power. Amen.